Ethan is this thing. Oh, it's on. You are good. Way to go, man. Man, I'm doing mic switches, and, and he, he's on it. Ethan, thank you for your work. Uh, in case you did not know, the story of Hansel and Gretel is not a Southern Baptist story. What? You know, you know the story, right? Hansel and Gretel. Now, I actually, I, I did not do my homework ahead of time, so I, I, I got to make sure I get the story right. Hansel and Gretel is the story of these two children who get lost in the forest, right? And they are kidnapped. No, they're trapped by this evil woman, right? In her candy house, right? And, uh, and instead of them being eaten, what happens? They cook her and eat her, right? Isn't that the story? They don't cook her? They do cook her, they don't eat her. Okay. They cook her, they don't eat her. Peter, that actually does not go with where I was headed that. <laughs> Despite what you may be thinking this morning, Baptists do not eat children. I know, it's crazy, right? If you're new to Friendship Baptist Church, please know that we care about children, but we do not eat them. See, the rumor mill early on in the foundation of the United States of America, uh, there were these weird Baptists that, that came over from Europe, and they did something weird. They did not baptize children. And so they had these spies from other Christian uh, denominations go to seek out, well, what do Baptists actually do with children if they don't baptize them? And the rumor mill that was going around was that Baptist churches actually eat children. Well, that is not true. I want to dispel any form of that belief. We do not affirm cannibalism in any form. And we will see this morning that we do not affirm cannibalism under any circumstances. And John 6 helps us with that very thing this morning. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to John chapter 6. We have been marching through it, and, and we have been in the spot where, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He ha uh, walks on water to, to get to his disciples that are in the storm-tossed boat. He helps them get to the other side, and they are at Capernaum. And we find out that we're, we're like week three in, in, in this whole conversation that Jesus is, is having. Um, and, and, but the point of John's gospel as we keep going back to, is to identify Jesus as the Messiah and to call us to believe and to follow him. That is the main thrust of the gospel. And so really, that's the underlying theme of every single part of John's gospel. And we are indeed continuing to work on our memory verse, John 6, verse 40, it's in your bulletins. It's here on the screen. Let's recite that together as we continue our corporate discipleship with Jesus. Here's what it says. Let's say it together. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray for our time in God's word. Father, we do pray that through John 6, that we would not miss Jesus as the Son of God for Jesus the carpenter's son. Father, would you work belief 
in our hearts and lives to your glory and our great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is the roadmap of where we are going. Uh, we are in verses 41 to 59 this morning. We're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at this father-son mission, and we're going to look at this flesh and blood that Jesus talks about. And here's the big idea, that, that this is what we want you to walk away with more than anything else from the passage this morning. Here's the big idea we want you to get. Don't miss Jesus, the Son of God, for Jesus, the carpenter's son. Instead, believe in Jesus and eat of him. Now, if there's some weird things in that sentence that you're going, how on earth do they connect? You're in a good spot. We're going to get there together. We're going down that road. So here's the big idea. Don't miss Jesus, the son of God, for Jesus, the carpenter's son. Believe in Jesus and eat of him. And so if you have a copy of God's word, uh, turn to it. We're going to start in verse 40. I'm going to read verses 41 to 46. And here is what John writes. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this Jesus? Is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has been, or he has seen the Father. Let's look at this father-son mission together. Right, there's two parts of the setting that we have to get if we're going to understand what's going on here. First, if you jump down to verse 59, we see that this whole conversation is taking place in the synagogue at Capernaum. Okay, everything really from uh, verse 25 all the way through the, the end of the chapter is really in the synagogue at Capernaum. So verse 59 influences what's going on here. Uh, our passage is also a response to Jesus' entire teaching, where Jesus had already called himself the bread of life. And Jesus has already described the Father's work in the world. And we see immediately in our passage this morning that there are different responses to Jesus, aren't there? People often assume because of children's Sunday school is full of, of people in the Bible who we want to emulate, that, that too easily we often assume that everyone in the Bible just loved Jesus. But it isn't so, is it? The first thing we see in our passage this morning is that people were upset at Jesus. Not because he said he was the true bread, but because he said he came down from heaven. We know this because verse 42, they think that they know Jesus because they know Mary and Joseph, and they think it's outrageous that he says he comes from heaven, not up the road. They know who Jesus' parents were. What right does he have 
to proclaim this divine heritage. If you remember back from the previous chapter in John chapter 5, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem were upset because Jesus said things that, that put him on par with God. Now these Galilean Jews are upset because they think they know a fellow Galilean and they're upset with his claims of divine heritage. Something actually is similar that is said about Jesus in Matthew 13. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In our passage, in verse 42, they thought they knew who Jesus was. There's a lot of irony in this passage uh, because they thought they knew all there was to know about Jesus, uh, about his paternity. But they were blind to his true identity. Jesus continues to say that they do not know as a result the Heavenly Father at all. Brothers and sisters, do you know facts about Jesus but miss who he really is? The people in our passage certainly knew true things about Jesus. They knew some of his stats, but they missed the most important part about him. Right? It's one thing to memorize all the stats on the back of a baseball card, about someone. And it's quite another thing to know someone on a personal level. It's something we don't ever want to be true of us. People who gather for the worship of God, thinking that we know all these things about Jesus, and we actually miss him. Well, how do we know whether we know Jesus or facts about him? Well, that's kind of an important question. Are we saying, Jesus, you can have this part of me, but, but, but nothing more? Do we say, Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings, but, but don't ask for the rest of, of, of the week. Those are my days. Are we willing to follow and serve him as we serve one another in church together? Right? We must ultimately come to Jesus by faith individually, our submission to Christ, but there's a very corporate discipleship to following Jesus. Right? Jesus has built his church and makes our discipleship to him include other Christians by serving and loving them as patterned and exampled by Jesus in loving and serving us. We are called to have the same mind among ourselves as Jesus had, as we think about love and serving one another, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Do you notice how uh, the people in our passage had some facts that were right about Jesus, but they actually missed one? That he is the eternal son of God in the flesh, come down to give life to all who believe in him. That's certainly more than just being the carpenter's son. The disciples recognized that very reality, which, which is why next week we're going to read Peter saying to Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, grumbling about Jesus, which is what's happening in our passage, grumbling about Jesus' claims, uh, about his claims, will be inevitable if we think that Jesus is only just like us. Jesus didn't claim to be a nice guy who heals, but the bread come down from heaven that gives life. The grumbling that we see in our passage shows them to be of the same spirit that's displayed by their forefathers in the wilderness who complained before and after God continued to provide for them. Their hearts were hard. And Jesus' response to the people in our passage this morning in, in verse 44, it's, it's quite helpful, actually. Why would they have Jesus, the, the Son of God, in the flesh with them, yet they don't recognize him for who he is? Why are they blind to what's going on? Verse 44 is actually the counterpart. It's like the other side of the coin of verse 37 that we looked at last week. So remember verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so our coming to the Father is by the great power of God, and that again comes with the same promise that those who come to Jesus will be raised up by Jesus on the last day. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 54 verse 13, which seems odd at first, but it's quite insightful. Uh, what's Isaiah 54 all about? Well, Isaiah 54 is coming off of the heels of Isaiah 53. Uh, you might know that famous passage of the suffering servant who has come to bear the sins of many. And then in Isaiah 54 is all about God's eternal and forever covenant, which we know is, is uh, completed in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so God says in Isaiah 54, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so when Jesus quotes verse 13 here in our passage, that all your children shall be taught by the Lord, it's in the context of this everlasting peace and this everlasting comfort and this everlasting covenant given by God. And so the work of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the promise of the eternal covenant of peace that God gives, it's all given to those who, as Jesus says in verse 45 of our passage, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. As far as human experience goes, to hear and to learn from the Father means hearing and believing the message of Jesus. Jesus is taking 
that exclusive right by saying that he is the only one who has seen the Father. Therefore, all who want to go to the Father must go to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't mistake God's merciful actions by refusing to respond in faith. We'd be wrong if we thought that God owes us anything. The Bible is very clear. We need God if we are to know what it means to have eternal life, to, to be with God. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The powerful works of God described by Jesus in our passage are actually merciful actions of saving, and we should see them as such. And it's helpful to point out that as strong of a position as John is making right now of the Father's role in our salvation, John also emphasizes uh, our responsibility to come to Jesus, and, and when we refuse to do so, it makes us guilty. Think of what John writes in, in verse 36 of chapter 6. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe, Jesus says to them. We're called to believe. That's the response of seeing God's work. The response to Jesus is we are called to believe. And then in verse 40 of John chapter 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. We are called to look on the Son and believe. So if your theology doesn't include a response of faith in Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, you are missing why Jesus is telling these people to stop grumbling. This is a great work of God. The only right response for those who know the truth of Jesus is to show it by coming to Christ as, as children of God, as citizens of a new family and of a heavenly kingdom. Our faith must have feet ready to come to Jesus and our faith must have hands ready to serve in Jesus' name and our faith must have hearts that love his love Jesus for his finished work on the cross and in the empty tomb brothers and sisters don't miss Jesus the son of god for Jesus the carpenter's son believe in Jesus and eat of him well, let's look at the second part of our passage, verses 47 through 59. Now we're getting into it deep, right? This flesh and blood part. And here is what John writes, beginning in verse 47. Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So remember, the, the same multitudes continued to have followed Jesus, uh, seeking another meal, Jesus had said just earlier. Uh, Jesus pointed out their short-sightedness. They were only seeking physical bread, but there was something more important. Food that endures to eternal life, verse 27 of chapter 6 says, which the Son of Man will give you. Now Jesus is trying to help them understand that life is more than physical. He's trying to turn their perspective away from the need of physical sustenance to their true need, which was spiritual. Using the bread metaphor, right, that faith in Jesus is speaking about faith in him. It's not actual bread. Jesus presses the symbolism even further. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And they don't realize it because of their hard hearts. But, but verse 47 is actually an invitation to believe. In, in this context, those who believe cannot approach Jesus as, as if they're doing him a favor, as if they know what's best for Jesus. They must believe and do so on his terms and by his grace. And so the result is an immediate inheritance and possession of everlasting life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, this is the weirdest service I have ever been in in my life. Uh, they're talking about flesh and blood and drinking blood. What on earth did I walk into today? Well, we welcome you and we are glad that you are here. And we again affirm that we do not eat children or anyone else. But I wonder if you are catching what Jesus is saying. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not actually a Christian. You're not sure what you think about Jesus. You thought he was a nice guy, but, but boy, this talk seems pretty extreme for a guy who was supposed to be a good teacher and a moral, and a moral liver. But, but notice what Jesus is saying. 
He's, he's not just saying that, that he's here to just make your life happy. He's actually claiming to be God sent from heaven who has come to give life and that you're to come to him in faith. I wonder if you're, uh, as a non-Christian, I wonder if you grumble in your heart about what Jesus is saying. I wonder if, if that's a hard thing for you to imagine. Why would God come in the flesh to earth? Well, he came to save. Friend, if, if you are uncertain about Jesus, won't you come to faith in him today? Don't grumble about how he said he is the bread from heaven and said, look at the wonderful work that God has done in being willing to come to rescue and redeem those who are lost and cannot save themselves. Won't you come today to Jesus in faith? Don't even wait another day. If that's you, would you come find me after the service? I'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to put your trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes analogies are established and then they take it to the next level. Right? One time... Uh, there was this family in my office meeting with me and, and they were telling me they were no longer uh, going to attend friendship and they needed to be rotated off of the places where they were serving. And I was bummed about it, honestly. And one of the things they said to me was, Brian, it's okay. It's not like we were dating or anything. It's not like we're breaking up with you. And I responded, you weren't my girlfriend, but we are supposed to be family. So it kind of feels like it's a breakup. They were speechless as a result. Jesus, in a similar way, has established his metaphor, this bread from heaven, uh, and now he takes it a step further. The contrast between the Old Testament manna and, and Jesus as the bread from heaven is being developed all the more. Uh, The manna in the wilderness, though it was heaven sent, was useful for sustaining natural life in desert conditions. But it could not give eternal life. We know this because all those fathers died in the wilderness, it says in verse 49. But Jesus is the bread from heaven that if anyone eats of this bread, which is to receive Jesus by faith, They are assured of eternal life. We might understand the metaphor Jesus is using here, and he continues to use it in the rest of the section, but the implications are pretty enormous. God is feeding his people with what they need so they will live forever. And how is he feeding them? It is through Jesus. In what way? Is God delivering what is necessary for people to live forever? In verse 51, Jesus mentions it. It's his flesh. Now we might want to jump in our minds to the Lord's Supper when we think about what Jesus is saying, and many do. But I actually think we should pause before we make that jump because I'm not actually convinced it's a reference that John is trying to make. Remember, remember every single time we read the Bible, uh, the books are written by human authors. They had direction, they had purpose, and while they wrote each book, 
we cannot make John say something that he isn't saying. John has to be saying it for us to say that John says it. You guys picking up what I'm laying down? You smell what I'm stepping in? You catching what I'm throwing? I keep going. I, I won't. We cannot make John say something that he isn't saying. John has to be saying it for us to say that John says it. And it just so happens that, that the Greek word that's used for flesh in our passage uh, is, is uh, not the same word that is used so often when Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. Right? Flesh and body, sarx and soma, are not the same words in Greek or in English. But where do we see John using the word flesh in his gospel? That is where we should jump first. We jump back to the beginning of John's gospel. In John word, or John 1, where it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, why does this matter? Well, the Bible is full of cross-reference connections that are important. But if we're not careful with the cross-reference that we make, but isn't there, it can lead us to a grave misunderstanding of something else. So for example, when I lived in Louisville, I was attending seminary, and we had this assignment to attend a Roman Catholic Mass. And it happened to be the Sunday of all Sundays. Uh, when someone from that congregation received some of the bread, which they believed to be the physical body of Jesus, no sooner than when he had put it in his mouth, not even to be able to be dissolved on the tongue, the man got sick and threw up. There are other things in his stomach which weren't good. But the bread, which had already been blessed, and by their beliefs, it had become the physical body of Jesus, and, and Jesus' body could not be wasted. What was the Roman Catholic priest to do? It couldn't go to waste. So he kneeled down, picked up the bread that was not consumed, but still vomited, and he ate it. Oh, the reasons that we should be careful of what we want John to say. Whew. Thankfully, I think Jesus, uh, thankfully John says that Jesus uses a different word for flesh and body here. But the metaphor didn't stop there. It continued to get their attention, didn't it, in our passage? Those who misunderstood Jesus in verse 52 were, were offended by his talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They, they were stuck in this physical mindset, ignoring the things of the Spirit. They were concerned with getting another physical meal. So Jesus uses the realm of the physical to teach what is an essential spiritual truth. And Jesus could have said, Guys, you're not understanding me. Come on, let, let's be reasonable now. But Jesus didn't do that. I, I actually think 
that this is where Austin gets it from, where he just pushes the metaphor. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you ever had a conversation with Austin, that's what he does. Well, it's patterned after Jesus, okay? So Austin's off the hook here. Jesus just presses the metaphor all the more, almost into to an awkward situation as you read it, right? Verse 53. So Jesus is no longer just saying that he is the bread of life. Think about this in, in the eyes and perspective of, of a faithful uh, Jewish person, a faithful Israelite who knows what the Mosaic law says. L listen to what Jesus says in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus, this isn't Hannibal Lecter, right? If you guys remember earlier in John 6, the, the Jesus for, ki for King campaign that was going on had, had evaporated. The people were walking away, shaking their heads. This crazy man wants us to eat his flesh. But they completely misunderstood what Jesus is saying. This is not cannibalism. Jesus is not advocating for that, and Baptists never did it either. The law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood and even eating meat with blood still in it. Therefore, for others to think the blood of the Son of Man uh, was a terrible idea, but the effect was to make Jesus' claim all the more scandalous to pave the way for, for what we're going to look at next week in verses 61 and 62. Which, which means you have to come back to see what we're talking about. What does Jesus mean about drinking blood and eating flesh? Uh, if his language is figurative, what does he mean? Notice how verse 54 in our passage and verse 40 are so closely parallel. You guys know what parallel means? You guys did geometry and passed. If you didn't pass, that's okay. Parallel lines are lines that are going the same direction but, but will never meet, okay? Uh, go in the same direction. So in, in the English language, when we say that, that these lines are parallel, oftentimes that's in poetry and that they're connected together, right? Well, what Jesus is saying in verse 54 and verse 40, those verses are parallel together. Check this out. V verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, now, now check out verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You guys see that? Verse 54, verse 40 are parallel together. The only substantial difference is one, one verse speaking of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, while the other is in the precisely the same location, speaks of looking to the Son and believing in him. The eating and drinking 
is a metaphor referring to believing in Jesus. That's why uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote, Believe and you have eaten. So our passage does not specifically reference the Lord's Supper, but it does expose the true meaning of it. As we think of how this passage has been misused as a reference for the Lord's Supper, we can rightly say Jesus is figuratively the bread and cup, but physically Jesus is in heaven and he will return one day to bring his people home. For Jesus, eating is believing. He promises eternal life to those who believe in him. Believe what? Believe that his death, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, pays in full the penalty for our rebellion and sin against God. And that Jesus' perfect righteousness is given freely to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. Jesus promises something far greater than manna in the desert. Life with Jesus now means victory over death at the last day. Brothers and sisters, we should see this morning that grumbling is seen as unbelief. Our passage is, is consumed as the response today. We see two different occasions in our passage where they're grumbling about Jesus over him being the bread sent from heaven and then even disputing what Jesus means about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the way that Jesus describes them as those who take offense, we're going to see next week that many of them say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And many of his disciples will turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. And he's going to offer the exact same thing to the 12 disciples. But they believe. And Peter says, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We need to see this morning that grumbling against Jesus is a sign of a heart of unbelief. No one is saying that what Jesus says is easy. No one is saying that, that this is just an easy thing to understand. What we are saying is that Jesus, the sent one from heaven, the one who has become our spotless lamb to step in our place, he's worth following. He's worth believing. So brothers and sisters, don't miss Jesus, the son of God, for Jesus, the carpenter's son. Believe in Jesus and eat of him. Jesus truly is the bread of life. Let's go to him. For him. Let us 
eat his flesh and drink his blood in that we look at the Son and believe in him, put our trust in him, and have eternal life with the promise that he will raise us up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which enlightens the eyes and gives life through your spirit to those who hear it. Father, help us to be people who, in reading hard passages, that we would approach them in humility and continue to look at Jesus, the sent one from heaven, the true bread from heaven, the one who has life in and of himself and calls us to find life in him. Oh, Father, help us to be hungry, to hunger and thirst for King Jesus. Father, thank you that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb whom we can always trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These are wonderful words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He 